Welcome back to the Mayor's Manor Podcast. We have another special treat this time around. Now, because you clicked on the link to get here, you probably already know who the guest is. But if you don't, your three clues would be perfect hair, a whistle, and a new book. Back in the late 80s and early 90s, the three things most synonymous with Kings games were probably the Edmonton Oilers, Calgary Flames, and Kerry Frazier. He was part of the NHL for the last 30 years, and he's been as divisive the character as you may ever find. He's hated by large groups of fans in nearly every NHL city. The players often voted him their favorite referee. And to show you the level of respect that players had for him, Wayne Gretzky wrote the foreword in his book. We're going to use the book as a backdrop for the interview. It's something that he penned over the last season, his final year on the ice. Frazier provided vivid memories from the cities, teams, and players that he's come in contact with. And in the interview you're about to hear, we'll talk more about some of these stories, including his personal thoughts on Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux, Theo Fleury, and several of the biggest names in hockey. So with that said, let's welcome in Kerry Frazier. All right, so we're here with Kerry Frazier, longtime referee in the NHL, and we're going to talk about his book today, and I'm sure he has several other stories. So, Kerry, welcome, and, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure. Now, we'll get to the book in a minute, but let's start with the one thing that nearly everybody thinks of when they think of Kerry Frazier, the hair. I, <laughs> I, I think you uh, you and your agent might have missed out on something. You should have had some sort of an endorsement deal with, you know, Just for Men or Supercuts or something. Well, you know, I... I have trouble hair, believe it or not, and uh, I have a special uh, individual that that uh, I followed around from place to place in the South New Jersey Philadelphia area. Uh, wherever Ed uh, Meehan goes, uh, that's where I end up uh, following and, and getting my hair cut. The uh, the secret, though, in the terms of of keeping it uh, from being windblown as I skated up and down the ice at breakneck speed. Uh, was Paul Mitchell Friesenshine. That's that's the company that I really should have been talking to. Well, there you go. There's an endorsement waiting to happen. <laughs> so tell the truth, then. How long did it take to do your hair before a game? Well, you know, at this point now, it just kind of uh, forms itself. Uh, I wake up from uh, a dead sleep. I have no bedhead. Uh, even with uh, the the forced helmet that was I was required to wear in my final uh, three seasons, I could take the helmet off, and it was almost perfect. <laughs> now, you know, we have another guy here in L.A. that has some, some pretty perfect hair himself with uh, King's broadcaster, Jim Fox. <laughs> well, Fox, he's got a ways to go to catch up to, you know, the Kerry Fraser quaff, but uh, he works at it. <laughs> nice. Now, uh, let's get to another another big topic. Besides the hair, one of the defining moments or one of the other defining moments in your career involved Wayne Gretzky during the Kings playoff run in 1993. You devote some time to it in the book. However, can you tell fans a little about the entire event from your perspective and kind of the life it's taken on in the subsequent years? Well, certainly um, no official ever wants to miss a call, uh, and especially one that has consequence. My objective was always to try and provide a positive influence on the game, and that was one that I wished I had a seen. There were consequences to that missed call, obviously, as Wayne Gretzky uh, shortly thereafter uh, not being uh, put in the penalty box for high-sticking Doug Gilmore, which which I missed, as did the linesman. We ended up uh, in overtime. Uh, Gretz buried a, a shot and forced a Game 7 in the uh, Western Conference Final between the LA Kings and the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, Wayne went on to have in Game 7 uh, the game he described as his best game of his career scored three goals and two assists in a 5-4 victory uh, for the Kings that put them into the Stanley Cup Finals against Montreal. You know, Leaf fans have really 
never forgiven me for for missing that call. It was a uh, a dream final shaping up for them with the Leafs and the Canadians, two original six rivals in Canada. And my father that night, after watching the game, and uh, I returned home the following day, uh, called him. He's back in my hometown of Sarnia, Ontario, and he said he had a little excitement that night where, as he slept in the chair following the game, heard about 4 o'clock in the morning something crashing into the back of his mini motorhome trailer hitch in the uh, in the uh, driveway. Uh, he looked out, and the car was ramming into it, backing up, hitting it again. Dad grabbed the axe uh, clad in his uh, tidy whitey underwear and, and chased the guy down the street uh, swinging the axe at his vehicle. Uh, I immediately, when I heard of it, uh, called NHL security and found out that through their traces that it had been a Leaf fan that drove approximately 80 or 90 miles from Kitchener-Waterloo to Sarnia looking for the home of Kerry Fraser's family. Mom uh, also uh, would receive uh, obscene phone calls and her solution was uh, in the uh, the spin-off of being a good official herself. Uh, she grabbed a referee's whistle, tied it to a skate lace, and hung it by her telephone so that the uh, unsuspecting prank caller would get a blast in his ear as soon as the profanity started to come out of his mouth. Wow. Moms always have the answer, don't they? Well, you know, I told her, uh, I, uh, following the release of my book uh, on October 23rd at, of all places, Wayne Gretzky's Restaurant in Toronto, I was whisked out the side door and put on uh, CBC TV uh, with Ron McLean and Don Cherry. And I took one of two whistles I used in my final game and presented it to Don Cherry, who always wanted the referees to put the whistle away, and particularly me. So I told Don as I presented it to him, I said, here's the whistle. I'm retiring it. I said, I got a good place for you to stick it. <laughs> well, I uh, I told my mother that it was time for her to retire her whistle as well. Now, well, let's go through a couple of other incidents uh, that you were around for. There, there's, of course... You mentioned the Stanley Cup Finals there. There's the illegal stick incident with Marty McSorley uh, there in the finals. How shocked were you by that little bit of gamesmanship and, and the way it unfolded there in Montreal? Well, you know, uh, when I wrote the book, uh, Jacques Demers, I, I, I contacted him. A couple of very meaningful uh, chapters that uh, Jacques was involved in. One was the Monday Night Miracle in St. Louis in 1986, and it was, again, the Western Conference Final. They were playing against Bob Johnson's Calgary Flames. It was a must-win. They still talk about it in St. Louis as the Monday Night Miracle, where the Blues came back from a three-goal deficit, scored three in 11 minutes to tie the game right at the end of the third period, and then Doug Wickenheiser scored in overtime. And as I talked to Jock, he mentioned that that game and the one in 1993 Stanley Cup Final Game 2 against the L.A. Kings were his two most memorable, favorite games and believed the best games he ever coached in the National Hockey League. And I said, ironically, Jacques, it was me that refereed both of those games, and I considered it a tremendous honor. And as we talked about the Marty McSorley stick measurement, he said that he felt bad having to do it. You know, it was kind of one of those calls that you just don't like to make as a coach, you know, put the attention. He felt bad for Marty, and there was suspicion that and accusations actually that Jacques had had somebody from his training staff go in, sneak into the King's dressing room and measure all of the sticks to see if uh, one was illegal that he might be able to call upon at the opportune moment. 
That didn't happen, he said, and I believe him. He's a tremendously honest man. But his players, during the first game, came back to Jacques and said, hey, listen, Marty McSorley's playing with a real illegal stick. He filed it, and at the right moment in the third period, when they were had already lost the first game, the Canadians, and if they went back to L.A. down two games, he felt that they never would have been able to come back and bring the series closer or secure victory. So at that point, he dug into his archive memory and said, okay, I'm going to make this call. Not only did he, uh, when I grabbed the stick from Marty McSorley, I looked at it and I went, oh my God, Marty, what are you thinking? I said, I don't even have to measure this thing. Look at it. So I went over and measured it very accurately. I knew the magnitude of the call. Wayne Gretzky was standing at the edge of the crease peeking in and I showed him the the stick measure, which wasn't something that I was required to do, but it was so obvious and it was such a huge call. Uh, I wanted their captain, Wayne Gretzky, to have a look at it as well. He just rolled his eyes. Marty went into the penalty box, and the rest was history. Goal scored then on uh, in the uh, overtime. Uh, Montreal won and won every game following that to uh, win the Stanley Cup. Did, did you and Marty happen to ever have any conversations about it in, in later years? You know, I haven't. I felt bad for Marty in that, from what I understand uh, from other players, uh, that Marty had said in the dressing room before the guys went out for the third period, guys, make sure you check your sticks. I guess that didn't include him. Nonetheless, uh, it it was a a tough pill uh, for the Kings to swallow, and I'm sure Marty McSorley. Now, another stick incident, uh, and this one involving uh, Kings coach Tom Webster. He, he was coaching the Kings at the time. A few seasons before that, he was suspended 12 games for throwing a stick at you. Uh, what do you recall about that bizarre situation at the Forum? Well, you know, Webby is such a great guy, uh, and I, I really like him. Uh, it was totally out of character for him to do that, and uh, I felt badly for him. As I saw the replay, I mean, that stick came flying out of there like an arrow, a javelin, actually. It, it hit me in the skate, kind of took me by surprise. I ejected him from the game. In the hearing that took place, and it was a conference uh, that I was part of, Tommy uh, you know, apologized uh, profusely. Uh, he had been experiencing for a number uh, of months an inner ear infection that uh, was uh, required him to have uh, take steroids, uh, you know, there were times when he wasn't even even able to fly, and uh, he was having a reaction to the uh, medication that was uh, prescribed for him. I jokingly afterwards said to him, "Boy, I'll tell you, with that steroid you were taking, you should have signed up for the Olympics, and uh, <laughs> you had to pass the test. The javelin would have been your event." Um, sure. But uh, certainly, 12 games was a was a tough uh, suspension uh, for him, uh, and and I really felt bad because he's such a great guy. It was it was bizarre to say the least. Now Marcel Dion tells a story about the night he received a death threat in Pittsburgh, but you you received one in St. Louis, is that right? That's correct. That was that uh, nineteen eighty six game uh, six that uh, the Monday Night Miracle. And what was interesting when I did talk to Jacques about it, uh, there were a couple of events uh, that I wrote about in that game uh, in in a very emotional way. Any time as a referee, you see a team that gives up, you know, you can just sense it. Uh, you have a, Every game has a heartbeat. It has a pulse. 
And as a referee, you have to feel the pulse of that game and the emotion. And there's times when you have to bring it back into check. You've got to pull the reins in on the horse that's running wildly. Uh, and in this particular case, uh, the first period ended 0-0, but Rick Wamsley for the St. Louis Blues let in what he described as three bad goals in the second period. And it looked to me like the St. Louis Blues had given up. Their captain, Rob Ramage, very aggressive foul at the uh, towards the end of the second period, broke a stick over a guy in front of the net. That, to me, was like an indication that, yike, I'm going to be the focus of attention because I've got to step up here, keep the peace, law and order, and protect players from a team that appears to have given up. Uh, so at the end of the period, I went to Rob Ramage, who was just stepping out of the penalty box, and I gave him the riot act. I said, listen, you, get in there and tell Jacques Demers, if you, he doesn't get some control and some discipline in you guys, I'm going to continue to fill the penalty box. This series is going to be over, game over, series over. He said, okay, I'll tell him. Immediately, two large police officers jumped out of the penalty box. They surrounded me. I was in the middle, and they took me off the ice. They said, hurry, Kerry, get off the ice. Now, they didn't take me across the ice through open territory. They took me around via the boards and the glass. When we got into the dressing room, I said, what's up? They said, well, it's our duty to inform you you've been issued a death threat. I said, oh, that's happened before, no big deal. I said, some guy's sitting at home, you know, he's got a six-pack, and he's disappointed in his team's performance, and he wants to blame me, so he made the call. They said, no, we traced the call. We know the guy is in the St. Louis arena. He's here. That's where the call originated from. He said he has a gun, and if you come out for the third period, he's going to shoot you. So that was a little more serious than someone calling in from home or my hotel room getting a call in the wee hours of the morning. Uh, so uh, I went out for the third, obviously, skated rapidly in a zigzag uh, up the ice and around one time before my linesman would even come out onto the ice with me, and uh, no gunshots were fired, and uh, then the uh, the miracle, uh, Monday night miracle, took place. Yeah, Mar- Mario says he took the shortest shifts of his career that night when he had the death threat there in Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's... Uh, you just never know. I mean, right. it, it could happen. Now, uh, speaking of law and order, one of the reasons you got into refereeing was you, you thought your size would probably prevent you from being a pro player. So so how about when you're out there on the ice breaking up fights with these guys sometimes? You know, they're bigger, they're stronger, especially here in the later years. Who, who was one of the guys that legitimately scared you or, or that you thought was truly unpredictable? <laughs> All of them at various times. Uh, but, you know, it's... Uh, it's funny that when you're in the heat of the battle and uh, adrenaline starts to rush, and uh, I found that the some of the best fighters in the game were guys that had, you know, um, they could surprise you. They had good balance. They they had agility. You know, it's not all about punch power. Uh, it's about being able to uh, to maintain uh, good balance and such. And you know, I um, certainly uh, built low to the ice. Uh, to say the least, but was blessed with uh, tremendous edge control on my skates and, and the ability uh, to stay on my feet. Uh, so when I was called into action, and I had certainly one real good wrestling match with Chris Chelios uh, one time in Chicago where uh, he ended up uh, being stripped down to uh, his hockey pants and uh, I think even his underwear top was off uh, by the time we were done, uh, just to contain and control uh, in multiple fight situations where 
the referee and linesman are all busy trying to make sure that there isn't uh, a danger, uh, a dangerous situation where one guy might get uh, jumping in uh, and uh, sucker punching other players. Uh, so, uh, fortunately, I wasn't called and pressed into action too many situations like that. But when I was, I, I didn't shy away from it. I'm sure players and fans have talked a lot of trash to you over the years. What was the funniest thing that somebody said to you out there that you just had to laugh? <laughs> well, you know, uh, when uh, oftentimes it was it was reference to my hair. I remember when I had the makeover do done. I, you know, I, I my early stages, and and I show the evolution of the Carrie Fraser hair in the final call in pictorial form. But uh, I had that beetle cut look uh, from the uh, the 80s uh, when I started. And during the rendezvous series, uh, my wife Kathy said, "Listen, uh, we got a break here. Uh, why don't we do a little makeover? It's time to change that appearance." Uh, so my first game back in uh, Madison Square Garden uh, with the new do uh, blown back. The house lights were down. The New York Islanders were the visiting team. Pat Price was playing defense for the Islanders. It was against the Rangers. And when they brought the house lights up, Pat Price was skating around and he did a double take looking at the referee to see who the heck is this new guy. He skated over to me and says, holy smoke sprays, I didn't recognize you. He said, what did you do, right over here in a convertible? <laughs> Mark Messier said, I always felt Carey understood the psychology of hockey. What do you think he meant by that? Well, I know exactly what he meant. There was uh, situations where, as, as Mess continued on with that, that players uh, really need to, uh, at times, uh, step up and control their own situations. He said that uh, that I felt uh, I wanted the game, I knew the way that the game was meant to be played and that the players themselves had, were required to play with courage, honor, and uh, respect. One night in Madison Square Garden, Peter Nedved had been a New York Ranger and went off to the Pittsburgh Penguins. And something Nedved might have said appeared in the newspaper, and uh, it bothered the captain, <laughs> Captain America. i got to tell you, Mark Messier was the ultimate captain and leader. And uh, he had that look, that stare, that could turn people to stone. He could strike fear in the hearts of, of uh, many just with his gaze uh, that would pierce you. Uh, this night he was upset with Nedved in their first return match, as opponents, as soon as the first face-off took place, Ness really didn't care about the puck, and he gave Peter Nedved a little short chop in the uh, cross-check motion in the uh, the glove area. I allowed it to happen, and I had read what had taken place prior to, and then it happened again and again, and I saw that fear that Ness had struck in the hearts of so many in the eyes of Peter Nedved. Finally, at the end of the first period, it had ended, and I skated over to Mark Messi, and I said, listen, Mess, I said, are you finished? Because you're starting to make me look bad, and I'm going to have to step up to the plate here. He said, Kerry, I'm done. Thanks a lot. It's over. Uh, so that was the, the let the players settle a little bit of their own score without going over the edge, something that was... I could allow to happen that uh, you know wasn't a compromise of uh, of my duties and responsibilities. 
another superstar that you talk about in the book is Mario Lemieux. And, and after talking about what a skilled player he is or, or he was, uh, you, you also say he had it all with the exception of one thing, maturity. Talk about that point for just a minute. Well, you know, I think that any time, and I, I've seen it with all of the superstars, um, they uh, so much is thrust upon them from Wayne Gretzky and, and what I wrote about uh, in the our, our encounter uh, where Wayne would be diving in the Northlands Coliseum and then whine when he didn't draw the penalty. Certainly, we all bring a personality to the game, and that personality can can remain constant if we allow it to, or we can look at negative components that we want to change, character flaws, if you will. I certainly have an abundance of them. It took a while for me to recognize some of them, and I worked hard at changing those that weren't uh, a positive uh, contribution uh, to not only uh, the game, but what I presented in all aspects of life. The maturity factor as we all grow and we, we learn uh, how to fit into the environment that we're cast in, players, superstar players, come into the league with an awful lot of expectation placed on them. You know, in Mario's situation, uh, he was the savior of the franchise right off the bat. Uh, they were horrible, and uh, so much was expected of him. He was a prize catch. And in that youth, and, and all of the pressures, sometimes uh, it takes a while to, to learn and grow uh, and fit that mold. He was named the captain very early in the second year. He was starting to demonstrate some of the stuff that I saw from, from Gretzky in, in his early stage, uh, and uh, we clashed. And after uh, him taking a, an obvious penalty, uh, and Mario was a guy that, became frustrated very quickly in his career through the restraining tactics that were allowed uh, during those eras uh, to uh, restrain the, the skilled players. And uh, so he retaliated, took a penalty, and he was scored upon, or their team was scored upon. When he came out for the face-off, he didn't even go to the bench. He just came right to center ice, said something condescending to me, tapped his stick, said, nice call, at which point I verbally undressed him. And I gave it to him pretty good. And I pointed to Paul Coffey, who was standing on the blue line, and I, I said that there's the captain. You're not the captain. Your players don't even listen to you. Uh, they don't respect you yet. You haven't, you haven't become the leader uh, that you, uh, goes with the C on your, on your jersey. And I really regret that, uh, you know, talking to someone of, uh, in that fashion, but also someone as great uh, a player as Mario with the talent that uh, he demonstrated. It was a couple of days later that I had that same Penguin team on Long Island against the Islanders, and at the end of the first period there was a scrum. And I blew my whistle and told the players to break it up, go back, go to the dressing rooms. They didn't move. I blew the whistle a little louder. My voice got a little louder, trying to disband them. Still, they didn't move. Finally, Mario skated in. He looked down on his nose at me, and he said, Hey, boys, let's go and they all left. And that was his signal and message to me, hey, listen, you, I'm in control of my team. I'm the captain. I'm in charge, not you. So there was that, that initial response. It, was, uh, it manifested itself after Mario had uh, gone through you know, his, his uh, treatment for Hodgkin's, uh, non-lymphoma Hodgkin's, uh, and then that season in question, he had uh, serious back issues, back surgery, missed a lot of the, uh, the season, 
and uh, I just think that uh, it hit the boiling point when once again he felt he was restrained, he retaliated, took a penalty, threw a stick over the glass from the penalty box, and that uh, was to receive a game or a ten-minute misconduct, and then charged out after me. Uh, you know, a, a, diff, a bad situation was averted when his players, uh, Ron Francis uh, uh, and Kevin Stevens, uh, intercepted him. And, uh, of course, it's uh, still uh, visible on YouTube. But during the hearing, Mario made reference to the, the grudge that uh, we had for one another. I do regret, certainly, the way that I approached him uh, in that early stage of his career. It's a great story. Well, you know, it's about lessons. It's about learning. It's about growth. And in this book, I certainly don't hold back uh, on uh, any self-deprecation or uh, lessons that we, you know, over 30 years, gosh, in any career, if if, if you don't think you've learned anything in 30 years, uh, sometimes it, it only took 30 seconds uh, for me to learn. But you have to be open uh, to change. You have to look to a positive uh, solution and resolution looking for a better way uh, and that's what uh, the premise of uh, of and my objective was as a referee was to be part of the solution not part of the problem and you know that took place even in the Thur- uh, Theo Fleury situation which I think is a tremendously powerful chapter it, it's riveting where uh, Theo uh, as uh, we found out had uh, you know serious issues uh, that resulted from an abusive situation as a as a young hockey player uh, by a pedophile that uh, you know spent time in prison and is likely going to go back there if uh, Theo has his way. Uh, and Theo wrote about it in his book, Playing with Fire, in detail. Uh, I knew he was an angry guy. He seemed to find uh, a way in every game to get under somebody's skin, uh, and certainly he and I locked horns uh, more frequently, I think, than any other official. Uh, as he wrote about in Playing with Fire. The description he made of the 1996 uh, Stanley Cup playoff game first round in Chicago when he was a Calgary Flame was accurate. What he quoted, he said, he said to me. It was vile. It was wicked. Uh, I ejected him from the game. One of the benefits that I have, uh, gifts, I guess, is that my memory is wonderful. It's like a steel trap. But I have the ability to recall emotion. So when I conjure up a story and, a, and a, an event that happened, it puts me emotionally in that moment, in that time. So when he threw his helmet at me, at the end of his verbal dialogue, that helmet hit my skate and it was sitting there. And I looked down at it and my legs started to twitch. I wanted to kick it right back at him. You know, it's sort of a non-response, uh, out-of-control response was this the, the quick twitch muscles in my leg wanted to boot that helmet right in his face, but the referee in me took over. I avoided that human tendency that was fired up inside me in emotion, and I just simply ejected him from the game. But, you know, four years later, when he was a free agent with the New York Rangers, making $8 million plus a year, and uh, had just been released uh, and concluded the... Uh, substance abuse program that was imposed upon him by the league, he came to me looking for help. He was then, that night, at Madison Square Garden, December 20th of 2000, the victim of verbal assault. He was pained by it. He was wounded and cut by words, not a stick. 
and uh, he came to the guy that I thought he least respected uh, in a position of authority, uh, which was me. And he had tears in his eyes, and he said, he can't talk to me like that. And it was Tyson Nash, who was playing for the St. Louis Blues as a second-year player, who had become one of the best trash talkers and get-under-your-skin guys uh, in the game at that time uh, that had wounded Theo. And uh, through an event that uh, I uh, put together and encouraged to uh, take place, which was an apology at the start of the next period, um, it uh, you know, you, you never really know sort of the effect that you might have uh, on anyone or in a situation. And this one materialized as I was writing the book in the summer uh, of 2010. I called Tyson Nash, who's now in Phoenix, and I wanted his approval uh, to tell the story, uh, which I had gotten from from uh, Theo uh, through his uh, co-author uh, and quoted him in his book, from his book. Uh, but when I talked to Tyson, I said, remember the situation in Madison Square Garden in 2000 with Theo Fleury? Well, his voice, there was, there was dead airspace on the phone. His voice inflection went down. He said, mm -hmm. Carrie, that was a life-altering situation for me. It was a defining moment in my career that I recognized I had to change. Mm -hmm. And through what you encouraged and forced me to, to apologize to Theo Fleury, it totally altered, it was life-altering for me. I said, tell me more. So he did. I said, would you write that for me in your words? And he sent me an email. I included it in the book in Tyson Nash's words as a lesson that there is a line. And, you know, while we look to win at all costs, whether it's players, fans, coaches, parents, uh, when now in youth hockey and youth sports uh, that they get so carried away, uh, and put pressure on their kids. This is a tremendous lesson and really, really a powerful chapter. Yeah, it definitely is a powerful chapter. Uh, I agree. The entire book is very open and honest, like you said, and uh, it, it's a must-read for any for any hockey fan that's out there. Uh, when, it, when it comes to rules, you were known as a guy who wasn't afraid to make a call late in the game or in overtime. So, so how do you respond when you hear fans talk about referees swallowing their whistles late in the game? Well, you know, I, I never subscribed to the Don Cherry sort of philosophy that let the players decide the outcome of the game. Because whenever you hear that, let them decide the outcome of the game, what it really means is let them cheat. Let them break the rules. Put your whistle away. Just go up and down the ice. Skate up and down and turn a blind eye to obvious infractions. I think the standard certainly alters. I think what was a penalty in the first period wouldn't necessarily be a penalty in the third period. But what we're talking about is obvious infractions that have to be called. And I never avoided those um, because I always maintained that if under the premise of let the players decide the outcome of the game, I don't do my job, I'm in fact affecting the outcome of the game because I'm out there for purpose. The referee is supposed to be... Uh, the integrity of the game, uphold the integrity of the game, be the enforcer. Uh, and the guidelines and the rules are handed down by the Rules Committee, by the Board of Governors uh, in the National Hockey League. And uh, it's the guys in stripes' job to uphold that, uh, that standard and that integrity. 
so that players know and have a guideline as to what they can and can't do. You know, when the players broke a rule, it just always boggled my mind that they would complain and and fans would uh, rail on the officials when, in fact, it was the player that they should be upset with and the player should be upset with himself. Um, you know, we strive for consistency, and that that was a far cry from, from being consistent when our standard altered, you know, from period to period and certainly late in the game and, gosh, overtime. Unless a stick went in one side and out the back of a player, virtually nothing was called in those days. We now see it change. The new NHL is uh, the expectation is for penalties to be called. It's incumbent upon them to maintain that standard. Players have to know clearly what they can and can't do, and I think that's what the expectation is. Uh, we've shifted somewhat from blame the official uh, to players accepting responsibility for their actions. Along the lines of, of rules there, there have been a lot of rule changes um, that have either been added to the game or taken out of the game since you first started and when you ended your career. Um, the NHL was even testing some different rule changes over the summer there in, in a camp in Toronto. If you were the commissioner of the NHL, what would be a, a, a rule change that you would want to put in place? Well, certainly uh, the commissioner's job is not an easy one, uh, nor is uh, Colin Campbell's in terms of suspension. Um, but I, I believe that if I was given the keys for a day uh, before I turned them back to, to Gary Bettman, first of all, I'd like to sit down and talk to him. I'd like to, to have a discussion, and with his vast knowledge and experience of being a commissioner and my 30-plus year vast knowledge experience of being an enforcement individual through different eras and evolution of the game that we could find some common ground and look at, which I believe is very topical. It is the problem that the game faces today in the culture of the game is how players freely uh, hit each other in the head uh, without regard for the safety uh, or the consequence. Um, you know, the league has stepped up uh, to their credit with blindside hits uh, but having just been to, uh, in, in October, uh, invited to attend the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where I heard the top concussion experts, uh, head trauma experts from North America and Europe with clear medical evidence of what takes place through various degrees of, uh, and ages and stages of professional athletes uh, that have donated their brains after death to uh, to be dissected. Uh, so there, there's clear evidence, uh, and, and they're studying it so in-depth that they know that the majority of concussions occur from frontal lobe contact. That's not a blindside hit. It's front contact. So while it's okay presently uh, to continue to hit players in the head from the front, it's not okay to hit them from the side. I'd like to sit with the commissioner and say, okay, how can we change the player's mindset so that they accept responsibility? They know they can't do it. It's not going to alter the aggressive contact of the game. That's the beauty of the game of hockey, is the physicality of the game. But I've seen through the evolution of the 30 years that I was in the NHL, players that checked, like Bob Ganey, uh, like Craig Ramsey coaching the Atlanta Flames, the great checkers, Guy Carboneau, 
John Madden, now presently, tremendous checker. They angle players. The purpose of their check is to get the puck. It's not to separate the man's head from his shoulders. You, you mentioned Colin Campbell kind of removing the person from the situation for a second. He came under fire recently, and, and if at some point his position became available, is that a job that you would be interested in, the, the disciplinary side of, uh, of hockey? Well, it's certainly, uh, like officiating, uh, a very difficult and demanding job. I think it's one that the office must maintain and uphold the integrity of the game and needs to be beyond reproach. I think that, uh, you know, whether there, it's a one-man job or whether it should be a committee of three, that's open for debate. Uh, it's certainly, I don't think I would ever be offered the job, but I think that someone with um, uh, the neutral kind of officiating experience uh, would be an ideal fit uh, for that position uh, in terms of the discipline. Um, you know, I, uh, I built a career over 30 years with, with uh, being able to develop relationships within the game uh, from coaches to players to uh, general managers. Uh, I never looked to be liked uh, which is kind of against our human tendency. We all want to be liked. My objective was to be respected. Uh, and so in difficult situations, uh, in confrontational situations, I can honestly say that I never held a grudge and the slate was wiped clean. Um, the, uh, there's a standard that was set uh, and there was always an attempt to look for a better way a positive resolution in times often of, uh, of a difficult situation. Uh, so from uh, I think the guidelines have to be clearly set, no differently than the standard that we talked about on the ice. I think that there needs to be a consistency factor from a suspension perspective so that if you do the, the crime, you, you better expect the time to be consistent, no matter who you are, whatever player it is whether he's a superstar or whether he's a guy that uh, is a fourth-line player. Uh, that's, that's what needs to be done, I believe. Now, what's it like to watch a game now that you're retired? Can you sit back and enjoy a game, or, or do you find yourself watching it as if you were you know, on the ice looking for infractions? No, not at all. I, you know, the, the answer to that question, John, is I love watching the game. I love the game. Uh, I think that Sean clearly through in the writing of my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am a hockey fan, and I love the game, and I love what I did for all those years. I had the best seat in the house. I love the interaction with all of the players, the, the greatest players of the game I got to see over 30 years. Um, but uh, now I look at a game as a fan, um, you know, and I uh, I have the uh, ability to appreciate a, a great play, a great hit. Um, uh, I look at it uh, from a, a rather a, an expert situation. I see plays develop. I watched Wayne Gretzky in the very early 80s on a video, and it taught me a lesson on seeing the ice. It, it boggled my mind to see in this film clip video of Wayne skating forward at a defenseman, not looking side, back, just straight ahead at the defenseman. He took the puck and passed it behind his back to the right wing. Yuri Curry wasn't even in the camera frame yet. But as he skated into frame full speed, 
the puck, the pass from Gretzky that went behind his back without looking, a no-look-behind-the-back pass, hit tape to tape right onto Yari Curry's stick. He never even broke stride. So it caused me to reflect. I'm, I'm rather an analytical mind, uh, and I thought, how did that happen? And I came up with the rationale and the philosophy that it's a case of speed, time, and distance. Wayne knew that that guy was going to be there at that moment based on the direction he had seen him traveling previously at some point with a quick look, flash of the camera, if you will, uh, and filed it in his mind, that knowing that at that particular moment, based on the speed and the time and the distance that Yuri had to travel, he would be right in that spot and the puck was there waiting for him. It was incredible. So I developed that sort of... of uh, a sense of, of uh, taking in all of the players on the ice in the moment and then filing it, referring back to it uh, based on their speed and direction they were going and proximity that they were to other players. Uh, so it, it really became kind of a, a, a mental chess game, watching and seeing things that were going on in the ice so you knew when to look for what at the appropriate moment. Uh, so I see that kind of developing now as I watch a game. Uh, I see the way players are positioned, the way they're leaning, the, the telltale tips that they, uh, they might give you. So you kind of watch the play knowing where it's going to go. One of the things we do uh, on the site here on mayorsmanor.com is we have a segment called High Low where players come on and they, they give the three highs of their career and the three lows of their career. There's so many great stories in your book and, and so many of the stories involve your, your interactions, if you will, with, with so many of the players uh, in, in the game. But for you personally, if you had to kind of sum things up, what were the three highs in your career and what were the three lows in your career? Well, certainly the, the high of my career was to be able to share the wonderful career that I had with my family, my wife, Kathy, my best friend. She participated actively as my best fan, uh, loves the game like I love the game, uh, so that would certainly uh, be a highlight for me. Each of our seven children uh, and now grandchildren uh, have been able to enjoy my career and uh, the game uh, as active participants. It's really been special. Uh, it's not just what I did. It's what we did and the accomplishments that, that I was able to achieve, they were part of. Uh, so that was really uh, special and, uh, and meaningful for me. Uh, you know, the the, uh, the game that uh, last season in Boston at Fenway Park, the Winter Classic, was a typical example of that, and I would place that as, as a number, uh, number one of the highs because when I stepped on the ice, when I walked through that tunnel at Fenway Park, historic Fenway Park, I, I thought of Babe Ruth and Garrick and Ted Williams and Carlton Fisk walking through the same tunnel to get to the dugout that I had to step up and when I stepped up into the open air the green monster was there and the place was jam-packed with people my family as I wrote my angels in the outfield were sitting there and it, it just was such a special moment for me and then the clean crisp air uh, of Boston that night uh, uh, afternoon of uh, New Year's Day I felt like a kid again I felt it took me back to being a kid in Canada playing on the outdoor rink uh, that my dad built, or Whitey Stapleton played for the Chicago Blackhawks that lived up the street from us and I played on his rink. I returned to those moments as I stepped onto the ice and was greeted by Bobby Clark, who was the uh, Philadelphia Flyer captain, uh, 
for the event, along with Bobby Orr as the other honorary captain. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the game became, once again for me, a kid's game, uh, and it was tremendous, just, just a tremendous event. The other element is that, uh, of number three, would be that I hope, and I believe, that I was able to make a positive difference uh, over the course of those 30 years through the development of relationships uh, that I enjoyed where players, uh, at the end of the day, like me, hate me, they respected what I did and what I brought to each game. I felt that they have demonstrated and stated to me that they felt the game was better as Wayne Gretzky texted me uh, as I was driving into the parking lot uh, in Philadelphia for my final game as Wayne texted and said, Kerry, you made the game better. And uh, for me, uh, that, uh, that was my whole intention, to try and make the game better, to do my part. Nobody paid to ever watch me re- referee, other than my family, uh, but that uh, I, was, uh, I was able to instill confidence in the players that I was there, I was going to be fair. Uh, the game, they would be protected uh, equally, and uh, that hopefully the uh, the best team would win. Uh, certainly, the the uh, from a low perspective, time away, uh, you know, having to, as I wrote about uh, when when we Kathy and I uh, suffered through uh, an unfortunate uh, miscarriage uh, of a, a child that uh, Kathy was carrying, and I had to uh, go to do a game in New Jersey. And I was absolutely horrible that night, as one might expect. But even in that, when Daryl Sutter, or I'm sorry, Dwayne Sutter, came to me uh, as a member of the Chicago Blackhawks playing in that game and said, Kerry, you were absolutely horrible tonight. You were you're the worst I've ever seen you. And I had tears in my eyes, and I said, Suds, I know I'm sorry. And I explained to him the situation very quickly because I was about to flood the tears, uh, flood the ice with my tears. Uh, and I just turned and skated away, leaving him with a dazed, numb look on his face. But, you know, again, that good story turns because the next week I was in the Chicago Stadium, and there standing in front of my dressing room door awaiting my arrival was Sutter and uh, just felt uh, horrible. I hadn't been able to sleep all week for his insensitivity that we take on this, the game is everything, and forget about real facts of life. Uh, so, you know, while that was a it was a low part uh, that having to go to work uh, when there was family tragedy, it turned to a positive in that uh, Dwayne Sutter and I uh, got to sit and share and bond and and uh, comfort one another through uh, through that situation. Yeah. Uh, I think the other the other element is, um, you know, I, I've seen some some uh, situations occur. Uh, over those years that I didn't necessarily agree with from a management perspective. Uh, and we can all disagree with, with uh, uh, in our workplace, uh, some of the political things that occur, and it happens in all walks of life. Uh, but I think the game has to be put first. Um, it needs to be put first, and the best interest of the game needs to be put first. Tough decisions always have to be made. When personalities get involved, I think sometimes that uh, takes precedent. The hardest thing for someone in any management position in any walk of life to do 
is to overcome flaws that we all have within our character that can drive us and rule us. So that if if you're, let's say you're suspending somebody, and or I'm penalizing somebody, and I take the internal organ mechanism and I say, I don't like that guy, I can't stand that guy, he's a pain in the butt, I'm going to really give it to him. Well, when I, when I make that conscious decision, or allow even the unconscious decision to let those emotions get carried away and take over, then I'm cheating the game. I'm not doing it the best service that I can, that I can provide it. We have to overcome oftentimes when we're in a decision-making role that tendency, those flaws that we might bring uh, to our workplace. Uh, and those are things that I've discussed um, to a, uh, a degree in the final call. Now, the, 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 for our final segment here, uh, we like to do a, 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 something called word association where basically I'll uh, read the name of a player or a person or a personality related to hockey and, and you just tell us the first thing that comes to mind, a word or phrase, uh, whatever it might be. Is that okay? Sure. All right, we have 12 names, so here we go. Gary Bettman. Oh, boy. Uh, little General. Colin Campbell. Tough player, tough job. Mario Lemieux. Phenomenal skill, savior of a franchise multiple times. Wayne Gretzky. The best. Simply the best. Sidney Crosby. The new face of the game. Alexander Ovechkin. Train wreck, out of control, highly skilled. Marty McSorley. Enforcer, man of courage, sometimes uh, misguided. Doug Gilmore. Leader and courageous. Martin Brodeur. Best goalie ever saw. Patrick Waugh. Emotional, proud, lots of rings. On Patrick Waugh's fingers. Chris Pronger. Scary. Physically, physically imposing. And finally, Sean Avery. Troubled, but highly effective, skilled player. All right, Carrie, again, thank you so much for your time. It's our, our, our final question here. You've written a wonderful book with great stories. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, it's, it's a must-read for any hockey fan. But for our final question, what's the best hockey book that you've ever read? Well, there's a couple. Ken Dryden, The Game, uh, which was phenomenal. And uh, the other was uh, Con Smythe, uh, which uh, was written by Scott Young. Uh, it was a riveting book uh, as uh, Con Smythe was uh, about to pass away. Carrie, thank you very much. John, my pleasure. I look forward to uh, our next uh, visit. Well, that's it. Another Mayor's Manor interview has come to an end. And as always, hope you enjoyed what you heard today. If so, there's plenty more from Frazier in his book, The Final Call. It's well worth your time. You'll laugh and who knows, you may even cry. To make things easy, we've even put a link right up on the site for you to order the book. Again, thanks for listening. And until next time, be sure to keep up with all the news by following along on Twitter at twitter.com slash mayor119. And remember to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mayor's manor. Have a great week.